0: back to a very special edition of the Fierce Females of History podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Talissa. And I'm Lucy. And today we've got a little different, we've got an interview with uh, American author, award-winning author Douglas A. Burton, who wrote the book *Faraway Bird, which is available now on Amazon and uh, Audible.com, and it's a narrative retelling of our very own Empress Theodora, who Talisa covered
1: in episode five. I sure did. If you haven't heard it, go back and have a listen, get a bit of a background on who she is, and then come back to this chat, because it's insane what we can talk about today. Yeah, and it, to ring a bell, it's... Geese teeth. That's the story about geese teeth. She's been there.
0: <laughs>
2: She's come back.
0: Um, Doug's, Doug's a really cool guy. He, um, he does a lot of work on how heroic figures and, of course, females are depicted in history and then sort of how that connects to the human experience and even today, today's crazy world that we're living in.
2: Now, Faraway Bird delves into the mind of Empress Theodora and the experiences that shaped her, coming from her her childhood and I mean, pretty traumatic childhood. Spoiler alert! And but the way that that it shaped her as she as she worked in uh, brothels on the stage until she eventually ascended the throne of the Byzantine Empire.
1: It's fascinating. It's a real rags to riches story. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, in this chat, though, we obviously talk about his book. We talk about Empress, Empress Theodora, but more than that, we start to look at the ways that her rule and her life affects the way that we live today and the impact it's had how many thousands of years on. And on top of that, we also talked to him about what it's like to share someone's story whose lived experience is different to your own. Um, And I found that really extraordinary to talk to him about as well. Now, this interview starts with, in my personal opinion, one of the best questions of all time and (laughs) the most important question of all time. (laughs) (laughs) I've read that you're from Texas, is that right? Yes. And I'm dying to know, because ever since I've been thinking and wondering about this, do you personally know Beyonce? Because as far as I understand, she's also from Texas.
3: (laughs) She is from Texas. uh, However, I have no (laughs) personal connection with beyonce
1: okay that's understandable i just had to ask because could you imagine? that's all we have time for today doug sorry yeah, yeah. Thank, We're gonna okay. have to go.
2: thank you
3: excellent great show i appreciate it and i will try to get in touch with beyonce
2: <laughs> love that oh my gosh, she could play empress theodora oh don't
1: even it would be awesome <laughs> it'd be a lot it'd be a big role <laughs> we obviously have to be a musical then <laughs> so true so obviously
3: that's theodora the musical
1: (laughs) so we we told the um the story i told the story of empress theo back in episode five and it's in very short terms the child sex slave who becomes one of the most powerful people in constantinople and is just this incredible journey i know what drew me to her what drew you to learning about empress theo
3: well, it I really was focused on, there was three characters at that time, um, or historical figures, I should say. Justinian, who was the emperor. There was Belisarius, who was a, like a, a military general and a savant. And then there was Theodora. And Justinian and Theodora in particular, both came from low stations in a very rigid class uh, society. So the fact that they were able to <laughs> Uh, have social mobility to the extent that they became the emperor and the empress is by itself extraordinary for both of them. But Theodora became more interesting because she had a massive stigma to overcome besides just poverty. She was a woman in a government that was clearly all male pretty much. And, uh, and with the low station and with her uh, kind of uh, salacious profession, I just found it amazing that she would get any sort of prominence at all, given the crowd she had to play for in the, in the government. And then when I found out that she was uh, behind and had influenced certain laws that almost sound like women's rights in a modern sense, it, it really seemed like a clash. Like there was two Theodoras. There was this uh, amazing uh, autocrat who seemed to be way ahead of her time. And then there was like this other Theodora who had kind of a checkered background and and a lot of stigmas and they didn't seem to be the same person, but um, trying to reconcile that, I think became a big focus for me as, as a draw.
1: It's interesting you say that because when I was researching her, I almost struggled to put the two people together. You have these people writing about, you know, the the geese story or the swan story in your book. Mm -hmm. And then you have this forward thinking, powerful woman and it, I found that a lot of the writing struggled to put the two together. So it's interesting you bring that up. Why do you think there is that disconnect there? Because it's very obvious in a lot of the research I did. They almost right. two separate people. Why do you think that is?
3: Well, the gossip that we hear about her really comes down to us from a single male source who was the primary historian of the time. His name is Procopius. And he writes these stories in a book in a secret book. In fact, it's called The Secret History. And he details some things about Theodora that are over the top. So there's some study that says it's all gossip, that he just made it up. And there's a good case for that. Uh, like, not like he's just telling stories about an empress who liked to sleep around. This was over the top stories, that, you know, we, her with geese, with 30 or so men at a single party like on a regular basis. There's all these stories. So, so there's a good reason to believe that it is gossip. The problem is, as far as this serving as defamation, it's extremely effective because you can't read about her and without coming up with the, without running into these stories at some point. And once you run into these stories, you can't forget them. Like they're, they're in your head and it always makes you like, if you want to talk about her, you're like, well, maybe we should just talk about, you know, Amelia Earhart or so, you know, so, you know, somebody else. So, cause she's got all this baggage that came with her. So, you know, and, and some people handle it differently. Some stories when they talk about her, they just say it never happened. And I always thought that's a little bit of a mistake because if you say it never happened and readers read a story that's absent of all this, they'll still run into it at some point and they'll still hit that wall where they're like, what do I think about her? So I just think it's a very effective form of defamation that survived for 1500 years. And you know, that's probably why it sounds like two different people. It's, it's possibly gossip or exaggerating uh, things about her early profession.
2: It's making me think of, I'm not sure if I've gotten it entirely right, but what is it? The virgin slash whore dichotomy. Like if you're a woman, you're one, or the other and it's something that women still struggle with today that either if you have sexual agency that's all that you're defined by and suddenly that's all that you are and in order to be pure and kind of taken seriously you can't I guess show that you're a sexual being and that that's just all that I'm thinking hearing you you talk it's something that hasn't really gone away but it's it just seems like one of the most black and white examples of it that we've got, you know, like the sexual Theodora, and then we've got, you know, like the Theodora that's going to be taken seriously because she's her story isn't about sex.
3: Right. I mean, well, believe it or not, I, I that's actually a great point. Uh, you're talking about a double standard that I do think is persistent. In fact, there's a story about her that i think is amazing she went once she was an empress she started to marry off friends of hers to noblemen because uh they, it, that was allowable at that point point. and there was one gentleman in particular his name was Saturnitus. she wanted a friend of hers to get married to him and he couldn't complain to theodora because she's you know the empress and so he took a different route he complained that she wasn't a virgin he's like i don't want to marry this girl she's she's not a virgin Um, And Theodora heard about this, so she called this guy, Saturninus, into her bedchambers and uh, let him air out his complaint. And then she brought in other prostitutes who testified to sleeping with this guy as a patron. So she had this guy rolled in a rug and flogged with a cane and said, how could you, how do you dare demand a virgin out of your wife when you're completely frequenting these brothels all the time? So she obviously didn't believe in that double standard whatsoever and uh, lived that out in some of her behavior and I just think that that's a great story because to me it kind of shows that you know Theodora just because she was a sexualized being doesn't mean that she's any different from the Theodora who's an empress so I think she kind of played out that double standard and just ignored it just kind of plowed over it
0: and and I think it's it's interesting in your book as well um because it's kind of a lot of the early stages of her life and there's lots of elements of when she came into power that you see before she did. So how, how did you set that up without making it obvious that would obviously make up a part of who she is to then go on and do these amazing things and essentially change the constitution, which we'll get to a bit later.
3: Right. So I had at a time when I wasn't thinking about writing this book about her, I was actually going to write it about Justinian. I was reading a completely unrelated book, and this book took a, a detour. It was a really bizarre detour into female exhibitionism from a psychological standpoint. And he was analyzing um, certain case profiles where women who basked in exhibitionism like to show themselves a lot actually had suffered some traumas uh, when they were younger that he called it counterphobia, which is to engage in something that scares you excessively as a kind of defense mechanism. And he had discussed this idea that, that female exhibitionism, in some cases where it went wrong, was women trying to overcome some shame that they had endured or experienced through shamelessness. And it made me think of Empress Theodora, not as a historical figure, but as, as like a person who could exist today. And I had an image in my mind of someone who had endured something that may have been traumatic as a younger woman, and then followed through in this in this form of counterphobia, through aggressive sexuality, uh, promiscuity, and exhibitionism. And suddenly, I just saw somebody that made sense to me, like a, a real arc, a real person, not just a historical figure. And as I tried to put this together, I had a lot of help from other women, obviously, Um, and helping me understand some of the perspective and experiences. And suddenly I just felt like she had come alive. And now I saw someone who was overcoming something. And it made sense to me how this person who overcame all of these issues could go on to become an empress, who not just became an empress, but insisted on drafting or having laws drafted to protect all women. So it suddenly made sense to me. I just saw a different arc there.
1: I can't wait to come back to that point because I really have so many questions about how you write a story like this, given that your lives are so far apart and <laughs> you can't, you know, the history, the, the gender, the just a lot of elements would be so different to what anyone experiences now, obviously. So I have some questions about that, but I want to go back right. to a point you made. You said it's a, it's a form of defamation. The way that they write about her carries on. Right. and I have, there's something we get, Brink gets brought up a lot when we do our episodes and we do our research is that history is written by a lot of powerful men. It's not written by your average Joe. It's not written by a lot of women. It's written by men. And I know mm-hmm. you've got the original book that these things are written in. Can you give us a bit of a perspective on just how this <laughs> stuff was written about, if you don't mind? Uh,
3: yeah. So Procopius, the powerful man in this case, who uh, upperclassmen, uh, historian, He wrote an official history, which is very flowery and, you know, very positive toward Justinian and Theodora. But he also wrote this other book uh, called The Secret History, which is not flattering. So and this is what happens to me and it'll happen to other people who research Theodora. They will come across these passages and you will read things like often Theodora would go to a bring your own food dinner party with 10 young men or so, all at the peak of their physical powers and with fornication as their chief object in life. And she would lie with her fellow diners in turn all night long. And when she had reduced all of them to a state of exhaustion, she would go to their slaves as many as 30 on occasion and copulate with every single one, but not even that would satisfy her lust.
1: I love so, that so yeah. God!
2: <laughs> yeah. So th- and that's, that's actually <laughs> one of the
3: nicer stories that just says she slept with a lot of guys mm-hmm. on one night. That's almost tame relative to some of these other things. He, he actually goes on to say that she gets upset at a party. She, she stripped down at one point and rebuked nature for giving her only three openings to bring into service, that sh- there should be more. Hold on, where's the other one here? So Lita and the Swan, here's how it actually plays out in reality. This is the actual hist- part where this story comes from. She would go to a theater in full view of people. She would throw off her clothes and stand naked in their midst having only her girdle around her private parts and groin. Not, however, because she was ashamed to expose these in public, but because no one is allowed to appear absolutely naked. With this minimum covering, she would spread herself out and lie face upward on the floor. Servants whose task had been imposed would sprinkle barley grains over her private parts, and geese trained for the purpose used to pick them off one by one with their bills and swallow them. Theodora, far from blushing when she stood up, actually seemed to be proud of this performance, for she was not only shameless herself, but did more than anyone to encourage shamelessness. Wow. So this was written by a historian. Um, And like I I said, you read these and you can't forget them. They're totally memorable. They stick in your head. So he did his job. Like if his job was to make her sound like crazy uh, or to at least make it off putting or hard to w- warm up to her as a historical figure, then I think he has been mostly successful for fifteen hundred years
1: yeah, well, this is the thing <laughs> it's stuck around because it's shocking it's shocking, yeah and it's not yeah. it's not that she's you know exploring her sexual agency, it's that she's gone to the extreme by the reports exactly,
3: um, so anyway, like I said, i part of the goal I had with the book was. So, so there is a the problem when you write about Theodora. Should you take this stuff out and have people discover it on their own anyway, which mm-hmm. you, they're still going to be shocked and possibly off-put. Do you leave it in and sensationalize it and just say, she's going to own this, she did it and she's not ashamed and, and who cares? Um, I tried one, I tried a different tactic. What I wanted to do is include the stories so that people aren't shocked when they discover them. So that they're desensitized by the stories when they hear of them, they're like, oh yeah, we, we knew about those, but to change the meaning of those stories. I actually used the Lita and the Swan moment in the climax of the book, but I changed the meaning of the moment completely. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that if I'm successful, that people will not only know about these stories, they won't be shocked by them, and they will still, knowing all the defamation, they will still find her to be a heroic woman even before she became an empress. That was the the goal that I had, or one of the goals that I had set out for the book.
1: Well, this is the thing. When we read about that part in the story, it's interesting because it's written in a way that it's almost heroic, the decision she makes to to do these acts or to... It, it's, you're right, you've changed the meaning of it. And I did wonder, like, writing a book like this, where obviously there is a lot of trauma, maybe, is a word. There's a lot of topics that maybe as someone experiencing life now, or as a man, or as whatever, I don't mean to speak for you, but I don't see that as being reflected in many people's experiences now, luckily. How do you go about reconciling the fact that these horrible things have happened, particularly because she was a child when this was happening, or that these graphic things have happened and go about writing that? Did you have to speak to a lot of people? What sort of way do you go about writing these things?
3: So there are some sensitive parts of the story. Mm -hmm. And I drew initially from other stories that have been shared with me by friends and family members in confidence. Mm -hmm. And so I had the most minor degree of familiarity with some of these issues. But I I really wanted to write about a character who, who experiences this and deals with this, who's a historical figure. And as I was doing this, I began to enter writing classes uh, with other writers for critique groups. And I was really nervous, to be perfectly honest with you, I was actually nervous to the point of abandoning the project. I, I was like, I, I don't want someone to think that I'm being presumptuous or, or careless or you know, r- you know, just running roughshod over very sensitive topics. But I, my wife actually encouraged me, she was go ahead and go to the writing group. And I went and it was like all women uh, in this group. Um, however, to my surprise and relief, Incredibly supportive, uh, incredibly willing to help, and unfortunately, some several women had come forward and shared stories themselves of similar instances. And to be perfectly clear, it changed me uh, as a person because I began to realize that this issue was bigger than I had understood uh, previously. And uh, in in an amazing moment of timing, the Me Too movement had begun. So the thing, some of the things that were in the story exploded onto national television. And it really made me think that this might not be just something that's happening every now and then, but possibly something that's rampant uh, and it occurs at all levels. And And I was, you know, I was writing about a strong woman who endured an abuse. And so it, it didn't surprise me seeing famous women, women leaders who, who tweeted, you know, hashtag me too. Suddenly it seemed possible. Um, that even strong women, strong and willful, excellent women who, uh, could still succumb to something uh, horrible like this. In fact, even in the book, I, I began to realize that a strong person with a really positive self-image might suffer in a very powerful way because they might not be willing to acknowledge what happened if they have a positive self-image because sometimes that's hard to reconcile. Something really terrible happening to you and a, and a really high self-image at the same time standing side by side so it, it made me think about so many things today in a completely different light and by the way not just in that one writing group but as the story progressed as this went to beta readers as I shared what I was doing with friends and family more and more women that I and men who I've known for a long time uh, in some cases shared stories with me that they never shared before and I, I just couldn't believe how many of these stories existed so I felt that if these people are tr- trusting me uh, with this, that I needed to attempt to get this right and, and try to try to do the best that I possibly could in in writing it. So, and it and was an was help. not fun. And I'm not like to be and to be even more honest. There was times I had written certain, and I would cry, and I would literally have to go to my day job, and I could look in the mirror. I, I could see it. I was pale and um, not like myself and I and people at work could tell that I had been crying and I would just tell them it was allergies uh but it's
1: <laughs> it's, uh,
3: it's just hard letting some of that stuff in if you're not uh as familiar with it
1: going back to the point you made about being conscious and and writing particularly the meteor I just want to say that I thank you for being conscious of that because it it does mean a lot to a lot of people to know that people are being gentle and careful and thoughtful when writing about something like this because for too long people weren't, so thank you.
3: Well, yeah. you're welcome and it, it is a reality. And um, I think everyone should revisit what they think they know about what's going on in the world. And they, when, when you know some of these news shows break about very powerful men like a Harvey Weinstein or a Jeffrey Epstein, you know, l- pay attention to it. I mean, that's happening. That's happened for decades with just those two individuals alone. And, you know, I got a, I, I get a sense myself now at this point that this is happening all over in the world. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. And it doesn't matter what time period you're in. It sounds like this is a recurrent issue. And by the nature of it, it stays hidden. It's invisible. Like I said, like to me, I've, I've, I've heard about all sorts of stories and things, but hearing it, in an into one-on-one discussions repeatedly, uh, from people I knew and from total strangers, uh, definitely opened. It just it changed me. It it changed my view of the world.
0: Okay, That's Doug. It. So obviously, um, Empress Theo has this amazing legacy. She's gone from uh, working as an exotic dancer and a sex worker to go on to change the constitution and a lot of those changes have been credited to a lot of Western civilization, um, rules and regulations. Where have you sort of seen that carry through?
3: So specifically the quote constitution of the time, uh, was just Roman law and, and during her and Justinian's reign, complete legal overhaul. And that's called the Corpus Juris Civilis. That's the name of it. And you can go onto Wikipedia and look this up. And per Wikipedia, it even says the corpus juris civilis are considered amongst the foundation documents in the Western legal tradition, including international public law. So to me, that is huge. <laughs> so here's here's a, a, an empress who was reigning at the time that these came out. And if these are considered foundation documents to Western society, then she's like standing on one of those early squares way back when, like long before the, the women's rights movement is credited for officially beginning, which I believe um, is like the 1700s is the, the most commonly used start date. And then there's other currents that flow into it. There's, you know, from the ancient Jewish tradition, there's some egalitarianism in, in Greek society, society. So there's other currents that flow into it, but for her to have influenced specific laws In the corpus juris civilis that have survived today, I think it's amazing. And it's one thing to say that there's just these laws that were written, but it's even more important to look at some of the specific laws. One of the boldest is under the corpus juris civilis, rape was made punishable by death. And this extended to anyone in the room or in the place that this occurred, that the crime was committed, uh, they would be considered guilty as well. And it even extended so far as to say that the personal property of the perpetrator would be transferred to the rape victim, which just seems so far ahead of what I would have understood out of medieval law. Um, so that's one. Another, she al- women were allowed to own and inherit property. That was a big one because that means if the patriarch or the father of the family passed down the daughter... Or wife could inherit the property. That wasn't always the case. Um, she made it more. She made it easier for women to get a divorce. At the time, there was a law of mutual consent, and this law exists in other places in the world today. Yeah. By the yep, way, yep. Uh, where the the man and the woman both have to agree to a divorce uh, for it to take place. And you might make the case that if they both have to agree, then it's equitable. But it's clearly disproportionately disadvantage or disadvantaging to women because whereas the man could enjoy a full life outside the household do whatever he wanted especially back uh, in the 1500 go to the brothels you could go to the hippie, you could do whatever you want uh the woman was not really given those rights in fact at this time in the sixth century women weren't allowed on the public streets unaccompanied so if the man said i don't agree She's staying at home and he could yeah. do whatever he wants. So clearly the, the law of mutual consent didn't favor women. She made it illegal. She made that illegal. Uh, she also said that women had to agree to a marriage twice, once at the proposal and once before the marriage in case they, you know, changed their mind uh, due to uh, external pressures that might've been put on them. Um, she also had laws added that said women could not be forced into prostitution. Um, and, what happened is people try to circumvent these, these laws. So when that law went in the, into effect, brothel keepers made prostitutes sign oaths saying, well, although it's illegal, I swear I'll never leave. When Theodora found out about it, she rendered those oaths illegal. So she followed up. And w- yeah. the more you read about the specific laws, the more heroic she comes across. It's not just a, a piece of legislation to her. She seemed to be vigilant in not only writing them, but finding ways to see that they were enforced.
2: Yeah, she was very thorough.
3: Yes, (laughs) very much so.
2: (laughs) How easy was it? So, like, we've got this awesome list of laws that she's brought into place, but I just keep thinking, dude, she's the only woman, you know, in power at the time. Surely she had about a million roadblocks to actually getting these things from, you know, from her brain being like, that's a good idea to actually making it a law. Do you know how... (laughs) What do we know about how difficult it was just for her to get those into place?
3: So it must have been as difficult as anything can be. This yeah. would have been like Apollo 11 uh, in you know, the 6th century, You know the amount that, of energy and effort that had to go into it, because I can't imagine her finding any favorable listeners uh, to this yeah. Obviously, uh, her husband Justinian was very favorable to her. They they had a famously egalitarian relationship, so having him on board obviously helped. But that's not enough. Um, I think that she was a lo- she brought a lot of the energy and perspective uh, behind it. Because even if Justinian's like, yeah, hey, I-, I support you, he would not know what law specifically to write. She would. So she had to not only articula- articulate articulate the specific language to say this exactly is wrong, she had to then find a way to enforce it and have everyone agree to it. And yeah. this is the challenge of, of book two. I really want to explore those power dynamics because this happened. So I, th- I feel like it's my job to figure out how. Um, yeah. I do think she probably um, had other supporters in the in the palace who were were men as well, which makes sense. If it's a male-dominated government, her allies within the government would likely be Male. However, I think she had a strong supporting cast of mm, women yeah. as well. A lot yeah. of women who worked with her in the brothels followed her into the government. So you can imagine her entering government, and they're like, "These are your helpers," and she's like, nah, I, I want my people that I trust."
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: So she I surrounded herself with those people, and they were cunning women. Uh, one of the most famous is her friend Antonina, who was the wife of the famous general at the time, and she was much very promiscuous uh, woman. And there's a lot of stories about her too. But these two women uh, really had a parallel government within the Byzantine Empire. I literally imagine it in my head as a parallel government of women by women who just ran a separate uh, government. In fact, they had, people would come to her in her bedchamber to like air out grievances the way you would in front of a king.
2: Mm.
3: So, did you ever see The Godfather? yeah you know how it opens with the guys telling this terrible story and the godfather is listening and you
2: know i pictured that happening
3: ready. in theodora's bedchamber where women were coming to her telling her stories and her listening and being like i'll take care of it uh and she did
0: <laughs> yeah and i think it's interesting as well like i know we spoke a bit earlier about how she was essentially marrying off her friends in her sort of in that lower class off to men of higher class because she mm-hmm. diminished that rule between the classes that you yes. can only marry the same class right so she you know so she obviously got rid of that but she was always forward thinking she was building her alliances from the very beginning and oh. infiltrating from the back of the room like she just sort of bled her way in slowly but surely so that when she did come to power she had all these sneaky alliances that even realized.
3: <laughs> that's why i honestly woman. can't wait to write yeah. this part- so from the classic historical sense, you know, between emperors and generals, generals get too successful. They turn their armies on the emperor. They overthrow the, so there's always the, you know, the, the Julius Caesar problem. Well, what's totally awesome about her story is she marries all of her friends to pretty much, and sister, to almost all the most important generals of the time. So if, if there was any concern about one of these generals, Theodora had someone in the bedroom. who knew everything that was going to happen with this general Uh, in my mind she had a more powerful more wide-reaching intelligence service than the government had her her, and i and she had women in the brothels who were sleeping with all of these other gentlemen of the city she knew in my mind all the secrets of this society and i think she used them in total and Mm -hmm. i can in, in like i said in my imagination it was Theodora and her government and her spy apparatus against the actual government. And I think she did just fine.
2: <laughs> I think that's what I'm going to call my, my friends now. I'm going to call them my spy apparatus. <laughs> <laughs> Gladly. <laughs> but, 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 it's, but it's so true, you know, like you hear about guys saying things to, you know, their friend. And then it gets to one girl in the friendship group. And you can guarantee that everyone's going to know what this guy has done. <laughs> like that's... <laughs>
3: Oh yeah, or the yeah, well, or, or the girls like, well, I don't know about this guy, you know, maybe you should, th-. and that yeah. influence is very powerful. So, really? um, yeah, I mean, it it counts, it works, it happens.
2: <laughs> we engage the spy apparatus. Oh we, yeah, we get the network to work. You know, this guy, he dated this girl. Let's find everything out about and, him. <laughs> and when these men are the most relaxed and vulnerable, of course they're gonna
0: chat their gob off about exactly. what they shouldn't be talking oh, about. Oh, yeah.
3: Pillow talk is uh, the most dangerous time.
2: <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Like, hello. <laughs> She's a genius.
1: I actually have a question because all these laws sound smart. They sound like they make sense. They sound like they're fair. Why is it that she was able to get this done? And here we are, however long later, and some of these things haven't happened or have been, slow to happen until now, like what, what is the disconnect? What happened there? Because it seems like she was full steam ahead in helping women and women's rights. And I feel like in a lot of parts of the world, even in Australia in some aspects, we're so far behind where she was. What happened there?
3: Yeah, so it, that's, and I think this is what's made me scratch my head too, because I had always imagined women's rights as purely a modern kind of progress. Uh, And now I don't see it that way at all. Um, And you can see that (laughs) there was efforts and and successes at different points in time. And then it kind of either erodes or over time disappears. And it seems to have disappeared um, after her. I think she was really a one woman movement. Um, And uh, unfortunately it wasn't sustainable, at least at that time. Um, Also, you have to keep in mind or I have to like, even remind myself, women weren't literate uh, a, a lot of the, in, the, in the sixth century. In fact, through my research, um, it was unusual that Theodora was literate. It was, a, it was an anomaly. So I even had to get to the point where I had to explain why is she literate? Why is a prostitute literate? And it's, it's, when you stop and think about why I, as a writer, have to explain that, that's, that's a tragedy. Why is a woman literate? Uh, Well, I have to explain that. So clearly women weren't contesting intellectually or from a learned standpoint at the same level as men were. I think intuitively uh, women and men have have always been equal, Um, but clearly they were denied some of the educational services that men had an advantage in. So I think when that plays out over time, generation and generation, I think it's hard to sustain a movement like that as you could imagine. I, that's why I think it's easier to sustain today. You have women operating on an equal basis on some levels, at least comparable access to education and and, and history and all those other things that, that men seem privy to. Women have that as well. And I think that's how you can sustain a movement and make something like this permanent. Uh, and in, in, in my view, on some level, it's just the way it should be. And we're kind of getting rid of some of the restraints that had been in place historically uh, speaking, a lot of places in the world
2: mm-hmm. so, true. so
3: yeah one woman movement <laughs> i think i is, love that uh...
2: this is actually a really really quick question i remember reading the book and seeing the name justinian and then i saw that his dad's name was justin mm-hmm. so it's like justin of justin is the ian part where does that end justinian so like
3: if he adopted, so that means adopted son so
2: oh okay
3: Right. So Justinian's father was actually like a pig farmer or something like that. And we don't know anything yeah, yeah, about yeah. him. But Justin entered the military and became successful and kind of prominent. So he brought Justinian out of the countryside and adopted him. So his real name is Petrus, Petrus yes. Sabadius. Yeah, yeah. So he had to take on the name of his uncle as in adopted son of Justin, Justinian. So if, oh. I guess if he adopted another son named Justinian, Justinian, then it would get... You, you would get, get st- that system would break down
2: <laughs> yeah okay sorry that was that was just um, a quick question
1: but i love that so much
2: what <laughs> else it, it was bugging I've me it was,
1: i was that. like lucy i was, was like, like, like sleep
0: <laughs> tonight now <sorry. laughs> oh my god just <laughs> 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 it
2: i like that
3: that bothered you so much <laughs> <laughs> that's lucy that had to get like addressed <laughs>
2: <laughs> um So we know know that the hero's journey is something that has kind of taken up a lot of pop culture and the way that Mm -hmm. we sort of tell stories, you know, so the hero hero comes, they're destined for greatness, they have to undergo challenge, moments of doubt, then they prove themselves, live happily ever ever after. Right. But the heroine's journey is different. I read that in your blog, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> how do how does those, how do these differences play out in in literature in the way that we tell stories and the way that we should understand stories about women?
3: So this has become kind of a major focus for me because I'm a huge fan of the hero's journey and a big student of it. I'm a big Star Wars guy and that's how a lot of people were introduced to it. I'm all about story structure and I care a lot about archetypes, mythology, and story structure, and I really wanted to bring that into the pages with Theodora. It was a big deal. I was like, you know, I want to see this done with with a great heroic woman from history, a real person too. And I found out that certain parts of the hero's journey weren't applying and I was listening to a great courses on audible.com and it was by a professor, Hannah B. Harvey, about storytelling and she started launching into this long analysis of fairy tales and little red riding hood and how uh, you have this beauty and the beast motif and it's a, it's a it's an allegory about really budding womanhood is what it's about and and how a woman's going to face that and deal with that which route are they going to go like kind of the promiscuous route or the you know the the nice good you know conforming route and and i thought to myself i was like if this is repetitive in culture across time and mythology, it's not in the hero's journey. So it made me wonder if there are other things comparable to the hero's journey that apply mainly or in general or, or favor a female experience. I started watching a bunch of movies, literally with like a pen and paper on my back and, and looking to see if I could see anything in common. And I was watching Silence of the Lambs with uh, Jodie Foster. Uh, one, she's one of my favorite heroines with Clarice Starling. And I got this idea that women, or at least several heroic women in fiction, were deviating from the hero's journey. And then it dawned on me, maybe they're not deviating, (laughs) maybe they're on a different type of a journey, and I'm not seeing it, and I'm not appreciating it or understanding it. So I've come up with a list of different journey. I'm calling it the heroine's labyrinth, and I've noticed some major and specific differences between the heroine in the labyrinth versus the hero on the journey. And then just a quick disclaimer, I don't think it's exclusive. I think women can go on a hero's journey, 100%. And I think men can get into a heroine's labyrinth situation. In fact, it happens all the time. And a lot of stories pull a little bit from both models. But the heroine's labyrinth, I'm actually very excited about for like one example of a difference. The hero's journey features a villain usually from outside the native culture, and the hero must travel to engage him in single combat many heroic women face a villain from within the native culture and this villain is typically duplicitous in that he's half benevolent half oppressive and to unmask and attack this villain she risks disturbing the social order of her native culture so it's a very tricky uh form of combat for her so that's just one example i also noticed something that i call the shield maiden moment which is unique Uh, to heroines it's not just like the male hero it's you'll see it everywhere you know it's two men facing off swords drawn you know single combat or like even in the matrix but they're facing off it's single combat like two rams about to butt heads um in the shield maiden moment it's a little bit different it's where the heroine physically interposes herself in between the villain and another life either a child or in some cases a man or somebody defenseless She physically interposes herself in between them and is willing to engage in combat in that moment, whether she's prepared uh, to fight or not. And it happens a lot. One of my favorites is obviously Ripley from Aliens uh, coming out in the loader, but I've seen dozens of these examples and I'm trying to, I'm spending a lot of my time now writing them all down so I can show just how often this happens. And quite honestly, it's one of the most heroic moments in in a story when that happens. So there's a bunch of these very specific motifs that are recurrent, through stories and in mythology that have nothing to do with the hero's journey. And I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's worth studying equally.
2: So true. (laughs) Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to the story that you wrote. Um, So I also wanted to ask, so like you said, a lot of the stuff that we know about Theodora is from Procopius and your book is based on true events But like it was so long ago, how do you choose the parts that, you know, you're like, I'm going to stick to what we absolutely know. And then how do you choose the parts? You're like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell a bit more of a story here. I'm going to maybe tell more of a narrative and maybe not, not be as concerned with sticking to those, those facts that were written down.
3: I tried to stay as true to history as I could, because I wanted people reading it to feel like maybe this is close to what happened. I wanted that because as a reader, you know, a lot of us are readers before we're writers. That's what you want. Like, I remember watching Amadeus, and then when I found out that a lot of it was made up, I was like, oh, really? I really wanted to to be like that. (laughs) So I wanted it to try to be as close to history as I could. So you have benchmarks, like we know this, we know that, we know this. And believe it or not, uh, I would listen to music. I know this this is a bizarre creative process, but I would imagine events and listen to music, and I would almost always at some point generate a scene in my head that fit with the narrative we know, but played out like a, like a movie scene in my head or something that was purely fictional. And that process works. <laughs> so I was able to come up with some stories that are fictional and but hopefully believable and relatable um, that wove in between all the events that I did know to have happened. The only major thing I changed in the story was the age that her father died. According to history, her father died when she was like five. Uh, in my yeah. book, she's uh, 14. But all the events after that, I, I tried to stay true almost exactly. There's actually a story, too, about her mother, which it's funny because in history, it's a footnote to history, and it's incredibly heroic, and it's, it's so obscure. You talk about, like, like, sometimes women aren't represented in history well. This is a great example. We don't even know her mother's name, so her name doesn't yeah. even get recorded in the history. But we know this one thing about her. When her family was about to be thrown out on the streets, her mother took her to the hippodrome, stood in front of the entire crowd and called out the head of her faction and, and tried to get her post her husband's post back, which yeah. resulted in a failure, but it inspired somebody from the rival faction to step in and offer that same post in return. And if you try to imagine that, I mean, standing in the middle of like Wrigley Field, or <laughs> you know what I'm saying, and, and, and having a one-on-one with a powerful man, that's pretty impressive for someone to do. And uh, that's her mom going into battle there, you know? So I, th- I figured that was an important event to capture because it shows a-, a strong woman who doesn't go on to become an empress, but clearly she set a- an example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The mama bear. Oh, yeah.
3: yeah. Big time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think what else is uh, we've had a conversation about it, and I've kind of had to reconcile with it in my head because. There's this whole idea that we speak about now about people sharing their own stories or people being a voice for their own community. And obviously in this situation, you're not from the same community as Empress Theodora. I don't know if many people are now. (laughs) It's just how it is. (laughs) Who should be telling the stories of women through history? Is it a case of the stories need to be told? And so whoever is the best fit for that story gets to tell them? Or do you think there needs to be a focus on people from the community or people? I don't, I don't, I don't quite know how to ask no, that I know what you before. mean. What do you it's see a, it's, a, it's a very
3: relevant question. And it's, it's on, it was on my mind from day one writing this. And really it was, like I said, it, it had concerned me so much so that I, I was not going to write it. And it was literally my wife who said, no, you should still write it. How do I feel about that? I feel like it's an important issue. I, I don't think that it, it's something that should be ignored. I think that uh, members of a community um, should take their community serious and portrayals of their community very seriously. And I I guess I would just ask that for members who are not of a community, who are telling a story that might overlap, give, give some other people a chance. And I think that the issue is, A, have they done their homework? Are they, are they giving this the respect it needs or are, they, or are they trampling through it and loading up a bunch of biases that are really clouding and distorting the story being told to, to the point of being completely offensive, uh, which is obviously something that happens. So I think that if someone's going to attempt this, they better be careful and they should take every possible precaution um, to do it. And then at some point, I think as a writer, I think, or any artist really, you have to risk writing what you're going to write and I think if you care I think if you care you'll take every step necessary to tell the story the right way and in the most sensitive uh realistic manner possible and and quite honestly you can't do that by yourself I did not sit in a room and just pen this out and and wing it I very timidly at first asked for a lot of help uh and I ended up getting an overwhelming amount of help and I think The reason people were willing to help me is because I think they felt I was being sincere in my effort, and they wanted to arm me with their experiences and stories and details um, that I would never possibly be able to put into a story. And it took me years. I had to run this several times through several different beta testing before I I bothered to um, attempt to publish it. In fact, there's some certain lines. There's several times where there's a simple sentence in the story that never sat right. And it took years to get even that one sentence just the right way so that it's, so that it was authentic uh, to people reading it, whether they, they were familiar with that experience or not, or whether they were from that group or not, or whether they understood that history or not. There's a lot of people don't understand the Byzantine empire. Uh, So you know, it takes a while to do this right. I just think if you're going to attempt it from outside the community, you better take steps to try to get it right. T- don't do it alone. <laughs> you know, yeah. Theodore is really a culmination of, of hundreds of women uh, who I've spoken with. She's a manifestation of, of the help I got. And there were certain women who helped me so much so that I put them in the acknowledgments uh, in the book because they, um, chain- they helped me to understand my character in ways that I, I couldn't.
1: And that comes across in your writing as well. That's why I ask yeah. because you do see a lot of there's a lot of ways that this story could have gone. There's a lot of ways that that Theodora as a character could have been written about, but the way that you so carefully craft her as a character and her journey, you can tell that these conversations have been had. And that's why I wanted to ask it. And I'm very glad you didn't walk away from it either. So give your wife a big thanks from us too because <laughs> it's a
3: good. Well, thank you. I uh, like I said. I I it's something I take seriously. I don't. Never want anyone, any writer to to treat that lightly. You know, it's probably safer to write something from within your community. But I think that you just better be careful uh, if you're going to wade into waters beyond your own experience, and that you'd better uh, consult uh, people who know what they're talking about better than you. I, I think that's yeah. the quickest way I can say that. And,
0: and I think you gave you, 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 sorry, you gave you gave her story the justice that it hadn't really had for centuries, and I think that is a really unique way of storytelling because even though you have done your own interpretation on it you've still managed to showcase her in a way that she she hadn't really been showcased before Re- not really going off the facts but yeah i think yeah
3: well good i'm really happy to hear that i you know i, I did wonder could i portray her with all of these stories heroically i wondered if i if i could do that and the moment I thought maybe I, I might be pulling this off is in a, in, in a beta reading point, someone said, you don't want to make Theodora too nice. And I was like, too nice? Like, she's like having sex in public. She's like doing live sex. Like I was doing all sorts of these things. And they're like, they're worried about me making her too nice. And I was like, okay, then I'm, I think I've got a character that they're on her side. <laughs> you know yeah, that's
2: true. <laughs> so I know that you're writing the sequel now, which I mm-hmm. assume is going more into the stuff that, she's, that she goes on to do. But outside of Theodora, are there any other women that you wanna write books about? Any other fem- fierce females from history that, that you're like, they're next?
3: Well, it's funny because I have learned, so I, on my author page, I will promote, um, the- first I started with Theodora, but then really all women of history. I started designing a woman of history personality quiz and let me tell you, this, was, this turned into a whopper of a project because- I bet. You have to find out each personality, which is each one is uh, different. And two, you have to have enough of each personality to make it interesting. You can't have like 12 women of one personality and one woman of another. So you had to find enough representations of each. And I wanted it to be diverse and, and cross-cultural all around the world. Um, and, and have it robust and then do the write-up on it. And in this process, I discovered just a ton of historical women that I had never heard of who are, like, how, how do we not know about them? And so, yes, there's there's dozens at this point. Um, the one And there's some popular ones based on popular response from other women. Uh, one of them is this uh, Hatshepsut. She was a, a pharaoh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, she seems to be a really popular one. A pharaoh in Egypt, and she – um had to really break through a lot of like stifling conform conforming almost ceremonial uh social practices like i think in western society we don't have as much ceremonial uh constraints but we have certain like social norms that we fight against but she had like ceremonial things she had to kind of cut through so she would be an interesting one and i would always love to see if it's possible to bring egypt to life like that it's tough you know it's such a different Time period. It'd be interesting to to bring her to life as well. And then there's another woman who I discovered named Bodica. She Ooh, was yeah. a uh, a rebel who from Britain who fought against the Roman army and the, with these uh, kind of guerrilla tactics. And she seems to be a complete badass. So, anyway, there's a whole bunch of them on there. I mean,
2: Boudicca,
0: I wanted to do her too. for an episode. I've never What's heard that? of her. So this is yep, right. You're on, you're on track. <laughs>
2: there,
3: there's another one. I'm actually. She's uh, she's from China and she's a pirate. I think this would Xing, make
2: Xing, Xing, Xing.
3: That's Shi. Oh, yeah. That's it. That's, yeah. it. That's her cool? name. Very I on brand. <laughs> I in my head <laughs> when I imagine scenes in my head, it would just be spectacular. Cinema as far as cinema- like a movie or a series, I would love to see her at the bow of a ship, leading serious incursions out like on the sea lanes like that just be it just be awesome so i feel like the world's ready for this all these stories to come to fruition they're all ready starting to, to happen so th- anyway those are just a couple that i would love to see uh come out yeah
2: they're all Good choices yeah <laughs> i think that they have Sheng. i hope i'm getting a name right Sheng shi i think is in one of the pirates of the caribbean movies i think they've got a fictionalized yeah. really oh version of her mm-hmm. going on this pirate yeah pirate lord but yeah. those are
3: like fantasias of a yeah. historical person. I, I would love to, I would like something a little bit more visceral because yeah. when, like, when you break it down, you're on a ship. I don't know. This seems like a pretty tough life. So yeah. I want to see that. I want to see how this played out. I want to see how she inspired the, the troops and I want to see how she carried out her raids. I just want to see that. I don't yeah. want
0: to um, diminish feminism, but her outfit would be amazing (laughs) get that visual it's a visual medium if it's to be a film (laughs)
3: yeah
0: i think one thing that we did want to ask you was what would you say is probably one of one of the biggest things either you or people in general take away from the story of empress theo
3: that uh, one was a heroine can come from anywhere you know that this idea that we're all destined for greatness may not resonate but you don't have to be destined for greatness to you know take charge of your life and and try to try to handle things one way or another. And a lot of times, I think sometimes like in star Wars, you have a heroine who never faces adversity. And I think that sometimes that's a mistake to portray heroic people as never having problems. In fact, I think the most heroic people in the world have tons of problems and have to overcome so many of them in order to get to a point where they're handling things at a high level all the time. So I want, that's one thing I would like people to take out of it, that you can, forge a path ahead one way or the other from wherever you're starting. And it's, it may not always end at the throne of the empire, but that journey is the same, even if it's a small victory or a big one, it's, it's a very similar journey uh, there too. I really want people to know about Theodora. I feel like she should have her place in the pantheon of the greatest women of history. And I wish she would be a household name. Uh, And I feel like the world's ready to get over the past uh, salacious stories and, and kind of, see them as one person and all of this comes together to form who she becomes as an empress. And, you know, I I just want people to feel like they went on a journey and they, they experienced something with a character that taught them things. I also wanted to show mentorship. And I felt sometimes movies don't show mentorship among women enough. I feel like that's left out. And you see a lot of movies with men and they're constantly mentoring each other. And I'm like, how come you don't see a lot more of that? With women. So I really wanted to make sure that I I had mentorship with women. Um, So another thing that uh, was shared with me from several women is they hate when women are portrayed as catty or petty and they always start arguing over something or a guy. So I made sure that that was not the case and that even with tough problems, that they handled it like professionals. So I just really, there was a lot of things I was trying to bring out in this story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a long shopping list.
3: It is. It Uh, is.
2: But you got them all. You got them all. You put them in the basket.
3: Yes. Yeah. Well, I listen, well, I just listened to what, to me, it was like readers are telling you what they're looking for. And, yeah. and I just wanted to write a story that, that hit those notes in a way that felt very genuine and believable and organic and stayed true to history.
1: Love it. Cool. Before we uh, wrap up as well, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up that about Theo, about your book, about anything that you think the listeners need to know that maybe we haven't covered yet?
3: Just uh, that you guys keep doing what you're doing. This is this is part of it, you know. Fierce females of history. It's a great title, <laughs> you know. Keep doing it. I mean, this is what people need. It. They need to hear about it. And you know, there was a time, maybe you don't know, ten years or whatever, where where they were talking about heroic women as if they were some like secondary Anomaly. story, but really front and center. It should it should be <clears throat> these stories should be pushed out there um and into the conscious mind of everybody so just keep doing what you're doing and uh you know oh, let time work its magic
1: <laughs> and Thanks you work so. on finding beyonce as well if you can if you don't don't yes. i <laughs> i actually sure. put
3: it the, you talk about the shopping list that's on my new <laughs> list i gotta find beyonce <laughs>
1: How great was that chat with Joe? So I know and I'm so glad that he's now trying to track down Beyonce that's my favorite part of this whole thing. <laughs> More importantly and of course an amazing talker and as journalists that's always a big help. I know it's <laughs> kind of fun to chat to a male author mm. about some kind of those tricky kind of questions but loved, loved hearing his perspective on it.
2: Yeah, it's always a joy to speak to someone who actually is also a, a writer. You know, mm-hmm. eloquence. Beautiful. We love it. So if you thought that was interesting, you can pick up Doug's book, Fireaway Bird, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Books A Million, and Pals. I don't know half of those places. I'm assuming they're American. Or grab it on your digital device
1: through Kindle or Band and Nook. Yeah, it's an, awesome, it's an awesome read. And of course, if or... you're not a reader like me, because <laughs> um, I'm not, but I am a listener, hence the podcast thing. Um, you can pick it up at audible.com. It's also got its own original score on the audiobook, which is kind of cool it's Audible as I said Google Play Amazon IndieBound Kobo and Walmart for the audiobook of Faraway Bird
0: um, and if you want to check out more on Doug and his works and some other really cool things uh, check out his website douglasaburton.com d-o-u-g-l-a-s-a-b-u-r-t-o-n ncom com he's also on Facebook Twitter and Instagram but all that information will be in this episode description speaking of Facebook and Instagram that is where you can find us we are on Instagram at Fierce Females of History no Fierce Females Podcast email
2: us at Fierce Females of History at gmail.com exactly and we're on Facebook
1: as well but just search one of those words and you'll find us you'll find us
2: it's been really great guys we'll be back in a few weeks with some new and exciting content until then don't stress we'll be back soon enjoy the break okay bye bye and wash your hands wash your hands wash your hands (laughs) and stop coughing on people people stay inside
1: I have to show you guys a story after this.